Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to bring mercy and grace and peace to your people whom you've chosen to be your own. Grant us hearts always to return your love and to show our joy to the nations, to the world, that they might come to, your, to praise your name. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay. I'm glad you're all here. Thanks for coming back. Um, just, uh, we're going to work on Song of Songs a little bit more, because as you have gathered, I think, Pastor Nelson and I have the capacity to talk about uh, things for a long period of time. And so we're just going to keep going. We're just, you know, just going to keep going. We'll think of all kinds of interesting things to say. But at some point, we'll shift topics. We're not sure what, what it'll be yet, um, but it won't happen until the end of Song of Songs. So you've got some lead time there. Um, there's a sign-up sheet in the back for the women's retreat, February 2nd and 3rd, Friday and Saturday, February 2nd and 3rd. The speaker this year is a, um, a professor at Concordia University in Chicago. Actually, she's, I think she's the dean of the, she's the dean of a department, the Arts and Humanities Department, maybe. Is a, it's a, she's a big deal, all right? She's a really big deal. School of Psychology. School of Psychology, okay. Um, and she's going to come and talk about uh, vocation. The way she described this to me is really, it sounds fantastic. Basically, you know, it's a word of absolution in one sense. You don't have to be something other than, what, than who you are, which is really nice to hear. Um, but she's got a lot more to say about it than that. So come along Friday and Saturday, February 2nd and 3rd. Bring a friend. Sign up uh, so we know, know who's going to be there, and that'll be great. And then send, your, send all the men in your lives to the men's retreat the following Friday and Saturday, February 9th and 10th, okay? Do you have any questions? Anything you want to talk about? Okay, well, let's do this. So uh, you, you may remember where we are in Song of Songs, about chapter 6. Jody asked me to make this a little bigger, so I guess I will. <laughs> um, here's what we're going to do. There's, there's, some, there's one particular thing about chapter 6 that I really want to dig a little deeper about. Actually, before we get rolling, we, I need, we need to have Bibles. So let me make that happen real quick here. Okay, so here's how we'll do this. Let's just read chapter 6, and then um, you tell me what you think, and then we'll drill down a little bit closer uh, in a couple of verses, and I'll show you what they are when we get there. All right. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. 
the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Okay, what do you think? Very flowery. We have a chance here to, to, to hear him at a little bit more length, right? This is, um, so he, he spoke at length in chapter 4, but again here now in chapter 6. Very flowery, yeah. Just So if, just what's your impression? I mean, he's, he's praising her um, in some very specific ways, but what's your, what's, if you're going to describe how he thinks of her, um, what's, what's she like to him? Perfect. Perfect, okay. In his eyes. Okay, but now, so I, I, I press that a little bit. It's not just, it's not, um, she's not just this ideal standing out there. One of the reasons why she's perfect is because of, um, because, because, of her peculiar character, because of her unique character. So she's not just, so Beatrice and Dante's divine comedy is the image of divine perfection, and she's, she, you know, her, pers- her personality doesn't matter quite so much as her holiness, her perfection. But that's not the case here, right? Her personality does matter, right? So how is she perfect? How does she... She's beautiful. Okay. Yes. She's what? Strong. She's strong. I thought you said long. But <laughs> she might be that too. Yeah. Um, she is very, very well liked by other women of very varying ranks. Right. Yes, so you observe a couple of things here. Let me write these down. So she's strong and well liked. Meaning, she is the object of much desire, right? So not just the women admire her, but presumably then also other men, right? And to me, I'm going from being well-liked by the other women of different ranks. I would say she's a very humble person. Okay. How do, you, how do the rest of you feel about that? Do you think she's humble? Not to not to lead the question one way or another, but or perhaps you might say she's she's quietly very strong. <laughs> okay, quietly strong. What else? Or what else do the rest of you think? What she says on here before I was aware. What is that? Uh, I figure when we read Song of Songs, I get to play a card a few times. Of I have no idea. So that's, yep, I'm going to play that right now. I have no idea. In fact, I'd say verses 11 through 13, I have no idea what's going on there. Um, Unless you wanted to see what the pomegranates look like to see what her cheeks look like. Well, that's right. But the, right? Um, I mean, you do it. So, uh, yeah, if I was going to gloss it, I would say something like, um, 
there's this expectation, this anticipation of what's going to come of her relationship. And here she is checking to see whether it's come to fruition. And all of a sudden, she discovers it has, right? Whatever that might be. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, Holly. I was wondering, you know, before she was aware of love or desire, the son, you know, it, like her desire was already set for her. Right? That's interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, so it was without her choosing, right? Her de- look at this. This is interesting grammatically. Her desire is the, is the subject. It does the action of setting her before among the chariots of her kinsmen, her prince. So she was drawn there, right? Not by her own volition, but she was taken. Interesting following with I went down to the nut orchard to look at blossoms in the valley. I've never lived anywhere where fruit trees or nut trees, where everything is in full bloom. It's fantastic, yeah. unbelievably gorgeous, and very, very fragrant. Yeah. So she's went there to enjoy this, and then <clears throat> before she was aware, she found something else. She found something else to draw her. To draw her, yeah. equally. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I think that sounds like a good interpretation of it. Um, which, you know, so depending, so we, to, we could talk about a theology of beauty, broadly speaking. Um, and you have to be careful when you do this because uh, what we perceive as beautiful may not always be truly beautiful, right? We find ourselves... Um, enthralled with things that are substitute beauties, right? Um, but in, in a very real sense, God um, manifests himself as, as beauty. Uh, he, he, beauty in the world is a gift to us who have been uh, given his Holy Spirit so that we see now that even, um, you know, the orchards, which are d- fearfully and wonderfully made, right, are a reflection of God's divine character and his his uh, beautiful order in the world. Um, and so to, to move from that to being drawn to him is not such a difficult step, right? To see something beautiful and have your heart inspired. I mean, there's this great, there's this interesting story about Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you know Jonathan Edwards, most likely from what you read his sermon in school, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do you recognize that name? And he comes across as this really bombastic, he's going to send you all to hell. Um, but he is not quite like that. So, that's, so give, him a, give him a second chance sometime when you get it. But he has this reflection of walking in the woods. He's a, he's a really sophisticated theologian. So he's walking in the woods, observing the beauty around him, and he finds himself um, transported to delight is, as he then reflects on the glory of the Holy Trinity. So he's, he, he, in the woods, as he's observing the beauty of nature, finds himself naturally thinking about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the way that they love one another and the way that they love the world. Um, and that is a, I mean, it's easy to be enraptured by beauty, but it's, uh, it requires the Holy Spirit to take you that next step and say, this beauty is God, an expression of God's goodness. Um, but when, when that happens, it's a wonderful thing, right? It's, uh, um, it's a delight. Okay, what else? Any other observations? Donna? Um, I noticed 
Yes. It sure does. And I was wondering, why does he go down to the garden? Uh, that's a, let's take a look here. Let me get the right color. Hang on. Blessed and praised. He goes down to the garden. Where does he do that? To graze. Yeah. Mm. Right. And so I don't know the answer to that question, but notice how it, notice how it goes, the order of things. The, the others, the choir, the chorus is asking the woman, where is your beloved, right? So, so well, they ask the question, where is he? And she, she gives this answer, cryptic answer. Um, but go ahead. Yeah, she says it again. I went to the garden. Right, right. And found him, my kinsman, a prince, she says Right. So, and, and notably, I mean, a garden is not just a beautiful place with blossoms and smells and fragrances, but a garden takes you where? When you think of a garden, where does it take you? Straight back to Eden, right? And this is, this is not insignificant. This is, uh, this is significant imagery in the life of Israel because, as you know, I think, uh, in the temple, when they construct the temple, what kinds of things, what kinds of things adorn the inside of the temple? Yeah, pomegranates, water, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lush, it, as, as well as it can be inside a building, it's constructed and, uh, and decorated to be a lush reminiscence of, of Eden. Um, so naturally, that's, you know, that's where you're going to find uh, the beloved. Which actually makes me think, incidentally, of the, um, you know, the, story, the epiphany story of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to Jerusalem, and then they come back and they can't find him, Right? Where were you? I was in my father's house. I was in the garden. Where, where else would I be, right? Um, anyway, okay. And lilies, what we have to eat. Yeah, right, right. Surely. In most places in the Bible, where they speak of the garden, it's always a place of solitude, a place of peace. Yeah. Beauty. Sure. Yep. So it's kind of goes right in line with it. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jan. I guess, you know, the other thing that struck me now that we're looking at this again after a month off is that she is really not an Israelite. She's a Shulamite. Sure. She is from a different area. If, if you take her to be the Shulamite, which is it just up, open for discussion. It talks about her being from the tents of Keto. Right. So... So if you're looking at this as Christ reaching out to the church as a whole, this would be a perfect example of that. Sure. That she's not a true Israelite, and technically the king was only supposed to marry a true Israelite. Interesting. I'd have to. I, I'd. I'd like to think about that a little bit more um, because in the in the Old Testament context, everything is pointing to God being wedded to Israel, right? So it's not, until, it's not until Jesus comes that we get this image of a bride from outside. But nonetheless, this is really important. All throughout the Old Testament, we'll talk about this a little bit more in just a second, Israel is there not just for her own sake, or you might even say not for her own sake whatsoever, but in order to be a blessing to all nations, right? In order to draw all nations to God. Um, and so... You know, anytime we see somebody outside of Israel being the recipient of God's favor, receiving his mercy and his kindness and his love, we're seeing that fulfilled. We're seeing Israel's role fulfilled, um, being a light to the Gentiles. Okay? Um, Yes, Carol? Why are the 60 
Um, right. So I, I don't know that those numbers have specific importance, but notice the sequence. I mean, this is a very Semitic, poetic convention. So you go 60, 80, without number, right? Just think of the, um, Jesus tells the parable of the uh, seed that grows and bears fruit. Some, uh, I can never remember the sequence, right? Some 50, some 100, right? Some, and, and so it's this notion that it's going to, it's abundance beyond what you can imagine. So th- think about that for a second. Um, go ahead, Holly. I was just thinking about 70 times 7. 70, exactly. That's the other, the other example that came to mind too, right? So Jesus isn't giving you, he's, he's not saying 490 times, right? He's saying, stop counting, Okay, because there's so many. And, and that's, that's definitely the idea you're supposed to get together here, right? Um, he says of her in verse 9, this is really important. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, right? The only one, not just among a few, but among countless many, without number, right? And they all adore her. She is the best, she, and, and not just, so this is, this is um, a crucial point, and I want to come back to this again and again today. She is not just the best, not just some embodiment of perfection, not just a Beatrice sitting you know, in, in, in heaven without any personality, but she is the best for him. Okay? In verse, I like where it says, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Bingo, you got it. They fit together. That's exactly right. God intended us to fit together. Yep. They fit together. Yes. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So hang on to that thought for just a second. I want to just make one more observation. Carol, you said quietly strong. Just to sort of um, emphasize this point about, about her personality or her character. Look at the, the, the language that he uses to describe her. It's military language, right? Uh, she is a combatant against him in some ways, right? You are as awesome as an army with banners. I can't say that about my wife. I don't think I could say that about her. Um, uh, I'd have to figure out how to nuance it appropriately if I was going to say it. Um, but think about what that means. And look at, I mean, I love this next phrase. Turn your eyes away from me. They overwhelm me. Why do they overwhelm me? Not, you know, it's not simply because they're so lovely, not because I'm just enraptured with the color of them, Right? but because they, eyes make a claim, right? Eyes make a claim on you. Um, don't, don't look at me. I might not be able to live up to what you, what you see, right? Um, so, so in that sense, I, maybe, maybe quietly is the right, right uh, um, word to describe it, but she's certainly, certainly strong over against him. Yes, ma'am. Um, in spite of all of these descriptions of her, she doesn't seem to be power-hungry. Right. I mean, queens yeah. and uh, military people, and she's even not even aware of being drawn to them. Yeah. It, which, which takes you back to this point right here. What is it that she wants more than anything? To be her beloved's, right? To belong to her beloved. This is, this is the, her source of, of comfort, her source of meaning in life, right? I am my beloved's, and he is mine. My beloved is mine. Okay, now here's the thing about this notion. This, this fits really well. The idea that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine fits wonderfully in our contemporary ideas about romance and marriage, right? Um, we're pretty comfortable with the idea that a relationship 
um, a true loving relationship is going to be exclusive. We say it in the marriage rite, um, forsaking all others, right? It's not surprising, um, and every love story is like that, um, this exclusivity. Now, I want to challenge you, though, to think about what this means in the life of Israel, okay? So it's easy to picture it when you think of one lover and another, but what about God choosing the nation of Israel and not the other nations? You see how that, that's, a, that's, a, that's not quite so easy to picture, not quite so easy to fathom. Um, it's an important thing to note. It's an important thing to observe that uh, God favors Israel in the Old Testament. Okay? He chooses Israel from among all the nations. Why does he, why does he choose Israel? Do you know? Krista. He wants to be their God, and it was a small, it was a small people, a group of people. They, right. He, he, know, he notes this. God says, he says, look, I didn't choose you because you were a big nation, right? Because you're so powerful and mighty, right? Yeah. Um, so, but do you, so, so, then, so, but why then? Why Israel? He chose Abraham. He chose Abraham. So, we're, so we back up, right? So he chose Abraham, and he chooses Israel on account of the promises given to Abraham. What's the promise God gives to Abraham? You, I will make, right, look up, number the stars in the sky, if you can. Rains of sand on the sea. Right. I, you will be blessed to be blessed. Right. Through you... Through your seed, through your offspring, I will, all the nations will be blessed. That's a, that's a crucial moment in the story of Israel. It gives you some reason why, it gives you a sense of the reason why God chooses somebody, right? He chooses Abraham in order to bless all the nations of the world. But it still doesn't tell you why he chose Abraham, right? Why, did it have, why Abraham and not, you know, somebody else? Just to press this a little bit further, open up your Bibles. Um, we're going to take a look at a couple of a couple of ways this this idea shows up. Genesis chapter six, the story of Noah, which in some ways, I mean, the story of Noah is a, a in, a, in a small event in hist in a, in a you know time span wise a local event in history. Um, this is a picture of what happens throughout all the rest of history. And even, I mean, Peter tells us in his epistle that this is a picture of what happens to us in baptism, right? We've got a wicked world in which we are, in which we are numbered, and God comes along and saves us through water, right? Puts us on the ark and drowns the wickedness, okay? But take a look at what it says here um, in Genesis 6, especially verse, let's start at verse 5, Okay? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Pause right there. 
uh, what's the fate of the world? What's, who, is there anyone innocent in the world? No. They are all wicked, right? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, and that every intention, the thoughts of his heart were evil continually. That's pretty absolute. You are all rotten, okay? Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. This is a really interesting thing for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I, I, it's remarkable. I mean, the language that's used, this, we, we kind of regard it as an anthropomorphism, right? In the eyes of God. But think about, how, again, how important the eyes are, right? He says in Song of Songs, don't, don't look at me. I can't take your eyes, right? And our eyes are how we capture the, the, the loveliness of somebody, how we enjoy the loveliness of somebody. And here... God has used his eyes, has looked at Noah, and found him to be favorable. Okay? But we don't have any reason for that. Barb. Sometimes, sometimes when you would, would act like this, it's because you see potential in someone. Interesting. Potential. And then I'm just trying to think of, well, what, is, what do I mean by potential? Yeah. I think it's like you see something of yourself in that person. And so maybe God saw something, a glimpse of something that he really created man that yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just <laughs> so that, and that's a, that's a fa- I'm so glad you said that because um, this is we, we we do this sort of mental gymnastics, right? We try and say, what was it about Noah, right? Um, was he was he especially faithful? Was he especially obedient? Was he did, had everybody else completely abandoned God, but he had this little faint little glimmer, right? Um, no, he didn't. He didn't have anything special. Um, this is one of the remarkable things about God, uh, is that he chooses not because of what he sees, but what he sees and what he chooses becomes favorable to him. Okay? Krista. That comes, that comes later. Yeah? Right? So we're introduced to Noah first here, and the first thing we hear about him, the first thing he has to his name is he found favor in God's eyes. Blameless later, walked with God later, but first found favor in God's eyes. Jan. Well, the scripture you read in chapel this morning says the exact same thing. Yep. God saved us, but he prepared us to do things for him. That's right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, but once you were not a people, and now you are a people. Okay? Once you were, a, you were a part of the wickedness of the earth, but now you're Noah, my, my favored one, one who has found favor in my eyes. Don't think for a minute that it was because you were something special, because you were set yourself apart from the wickedness of the earth, but it's because I chose you. It's because, and, and why did God choose somebody? Why did God choose Noah or anybody at all? He needed somebody. He wanted to save humanity, right? He wasn't, he wasn't done with us yet. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing um, that it, it saves us from thinking that God is just sort of out there watching the world spin, you know, having wound it up like a clock, just watching it spin away. No, God is um, here choosing specifically being active in history um, because he needs people to, to, to do things. Rachel. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Perfect. 
So think about the parallel here, okay? This is, this is brilliant. Um, back, so he needs Noah in order to populate the earth. He needs Abraham and his family in order to bless all the nations of the earth. He needs Mary to bear his son, right? He chooses these people for his purposes, for his reasons, not because of something in them, but to carry out his, his will, right? To, to, and what's his will? This is the important thing. What's his will? To save us. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, Holly. Um, so, I guess does he just use Israel as, like, I can save these people, and if you're not in, you're not in, but now I'm going to bring Jesus in, and now I'm Christ in. Right. Is that... Let's take a look at how this works out, okay? So, yeah, it, that's... I started there, you know, started small, so then you could say, look, you're out, but now I'm going to send somebody so you can help me. It's, that is a great question. From the beginning, God had in mind that he was going to bring in all nations. Okay? We'll see it. Take a look here. Um, take a look at Exodus chapter 19. So we, we hear it already in the promise given to Abraham. In your offspring, all nations of the world will be blessed. Now, we get to the New Testament, and the big question after Jesus ascends into heaven is, well, what about all those people who aren't Jews? Right? Is this for them too? Which is a silly question, because of course it is. It's been like that from the beginning. But when you've spent the last 4,000 years being God's specially chosen people, it becomes very easy to think that you're it, right? That you're it. And in fact, that was, that was the reason why Jesus being the Messiah was so confusing, um, and that he would die, that he would need to die, uh, so confusing, because of, you don't really need to die to save an ethnic group of people, Right? All you got to do is rout the Romans. All you got to do is, you know, get, uh, build a palace and establish a throne. It's not that hard, right? You don't need to die to do that. Um, you just need an army, right? Um, but evidently, Jesus had something much, much grander in mind. Okay, Exodus chapter nineteen. Where should we start? Let's see here. Uh, we'll start at the beginning. Okay, so Exodus moves pretty slowly. Um, they've crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering in the wilderness just a bit. They're on their way to the promised land. Nothing's, th- things have gone a little bit sour because they like to grumble, right? We're thirsty. We would rather be eating meat in Egypt. Send us back. We're okay being slaves. And God, so God is patient. And sometime read, read, just read through Exodus and look at how patient God is. It's, it's uh, very hopeful for us, okay? Chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel, so three months had gone, out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. I I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And you shall be to me, look at this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? They, They serve God. Okay, so we don't have Jesus quite yet. 
They don't have not, no right. So in, in the Old Testament, what do priests do? They offer sacrifices. They are the go-between. They're the intermediary between the people and God. So God says, I'm, "You're going to be a kingdom of priests, intercessors for the nations." Okay, you're going to. This is your job. Just like the Levites were for Israel, you're going to be for all nations. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so, so God has this job for Israel. This is why he's chosen them. It's to save the world. Now, how does that go? Not real well. Okay, follow me. This is, this is a fun exercise. Flip on your Bible. We're going to flip to, don't, don't go all the way there yet. We're going to go to chapter 32. Just So flip, you see what we're getting here as you look at the headings. We're getting laws. This is the covenant. We're going to chapter 32. The Ark of the Covenants, chapter 25. The altar, the tabernacle. This is, this is all the stuff that Israel is going to use to serve as priests. Then there's the uh, garments for the priests in, within Israel and the consecration of the priests in chapter 29. The altar of incense in chapter 30. Moses is still on the mountain. Okay, He's on the mountain for a long time. Right? A long time. 31. Okay, Chapter 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him for a long time, on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Are you there? Chapter 31, verse 18. Conversation's over. Okay. God has just said, okay, this is easy. Your job description, obey. Be priests to the nations. The king, a kingdom of priests. Perfect. When the people saw that Moses, chapter 31, verse 32, verse 1, that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I like this is, this is great comedy. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. As for this fellow. As for this fellow. Even better. I like it. And then, I mean, so later, later when Moses comes down and he's chewing out Aaron, Aaron says, Look, these people made me do it. He, I mean, he, re- he literally says that. It's hilarious. But it's at the same time, at the same time, tremendously tragic, right? Because God has this great job, this great uh, role for Israel to be his beloved for this purpose, and they can't even last through the wedding vows, okay? Right? They can't make it to the end of the wedding ceremony. Um, so... Which is, so this is back to Holly's question. I mean, God had in mind from the beginning, from Genesis 3.15, when he says of Eve and her seed that they will crush the serpent's head, all nations are going to be blessed, right? How he's going to do that um, is in a particular way. And he chooses for himself Israel to do that, knowing, of course, because God knows all things, right? Knowing, of course, this is not going to work out. Um, so we, don't, so we don't think of Jesus as sort of like a backup plan, right? But in some way, I mean, you might think of it in this way. Um, Israel proves just how bad we need this divine intervention, right? Just how badly we need something more than a group of faithful people. We need a faithful Israelite, all right? Take, take a look. This, is, this story is um, so illuminating. Take a look at... Go to the next chapter, chapter 33. This is after Moses has come down, broken the tablets. Um, he has punished the people. He says, he says in verse um, 27 of 32, he tells uh, the sons of Levi to put a sword 
on the side of each of you and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp and kill your brother and his companion and his neighbor, right? Justice, vengeance for disobedience. God is, um, the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, idiom for talking about being angry, especially God being angry, is his nose is hot, okay? God is infuri- infuriated, all right? Uh, but then we go to chapter 33. Take a look at verse 12. So now Moses has a problem because God has asked him to lead his people Israel. Israel is terrible, but Moses still has this job, right? And Moses has got to somehow negotiate between God and these terrible people, all right? God's angry. The people are awful. What's Moses going to do? Well, he's, this is, Moses is a master negotiator, Okay. And he's a picture of Christ. Moses is a picture of Christ. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. That's Moses. God has said to Moses, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. You've been chosen for this role. Now, therefore, Moses says, if it's true that I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Also, these are your people, right? Consider, too, that this nation is your people. They're your problem, God. And he said, God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, I should, I should have checked. It would be interesting. So in, in Hebrew and Greek, in, in many languages, um, you, so when we say you, it's ambiguous, so that we're talking about you Barb or you, women's Bible study, right? Um, it's not ambiguous in the original. And it would be interesting, I suspect that God says here, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. But I should check that. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I will know you by name. Why does God agree to go with Israel? And to continue to be their God? Because of Moses. Because Moses intercedes for them, right? So now you you get this, this inkling already here at the very beginning of the story that uh, a representative, a, a, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, a faithful Israelite indeed, um, uh, can, can intercede on behalf of the people. That God can look at Moses and say, just like he did you know, with Abraham who prayed on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? If, say, Lord, if there's only 50 faithful, and God says, okay, I won't destroy from 50. How about 40, 30, 20, 10? God says, okay, not if there are 10. And there were just a few less than 10, right? And so he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, same thing here. Because of, because of you, Moses. And, I, and, and then note this. God has given Moses this job of speaking on behalf of his people, of representing his people, of being their prophet. Okay? Uh, you tracking so far? So, yeah, Jan. One of the things when, when we were studying that Epiphany Bible study on Tuesday morning at LW about the fact as Christ was saved by going down into Egypt, so Moses was saved by being 
drawn out of the water yes. by the princess yeah. of Egypt. That's right. Because otherwise, Moses would never have been there. Exactly, right? And that, I mean, that is thematic throughout the Old Testament when God chooses people. It's not just like he picks somebody who had a normal childhood and was a decent kid and like that's right that's right but it's through a miraculous connection to his own people and it was by a miraculous rescue i mean think about the difference between saul who stood a head taller than all the other men and was handsome to see and looked like a king and acted like a king who messes up royally Royally, that's a bad pun. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and David, who was the youngest of his brothers and just a little poor little shepherd, right? It's, it, this, is how, this is how God proves the point, right? Look, it's not because of you. That's because of me, all right? Yeah. Uh, so, okay, now, d- keep with me a little bit longer here. There's a few more things in the, in the Old Testament here to point us ahead, that continue to point us ahead to Jesus. So, what we have so far is the idea that we've got a nation of priests, but they're awful at being priests, but God's going to stick with them because of an, a man, Moses. Now, also, I mean, we have his miraculous birth, his miraculous rescue from, from the waters of the, of the Nile. Um, we also have, it, so in the New Testament, as you read, say, Matthew in particular, um, Matthew really wants us to understand that Jesus is the new Moses. So, uh, for instance, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus sits down on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and gives the law to the people, just like God does through Moses here at Mount Sinai, right? But it's a new law. You've heard it said, but I say to you, uh, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, right? Um, okay, so turn ahead to Deuteronomy Chapter 7. Now, God has borne with the people of Israel for lo these many years in the wilderness. Um, and at this point, he's pretty, pretty invested in them, okay? Um, but he wants to make sure that they understand what's about to happen. So they're going to go and inherit the promised land. Um, chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession, possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, all of these nations. Verse 2, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Now notice the circular reasoning God is employing here. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Okay, you see it? All right. Um, Which is how love works. Uh, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that through Abraham's seed all nations of the earth will be blessed that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You couldn't, you couldn't be who I had chosen you to be when you were enslaved. You couldn't do it. 
So that's why I brought you out, okay? And now you're going to go in, and you're going to be my people, and this is going to be fantastic. Turn ahead one more time to Deuteronomy. I, should, I thought I wrote it down. 18. That's 18. Deuteronomy 18. And here we get the, um, one of the clearest, another one of the clearest notions of the fact that Moses is foreshadowing how God's going to save the world through a, a, um, a, a faithful Israelite. Okay? Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord. When they, when they said, we can't talk to God, we need somebody to talk to him for us, God's going to do it. He's going to raise up for you a prophet from among your brothers, just like me, Moses says. And who is that? It's going to be Jesus. Okay? Because the rest of the story goes like this, as you know. Um, God provides for the people. They insist on a king. He gives them a king. The king misleads them, is unfaithful, and and notice, all of the people are punished on account of the unfaithfulness of their, of their princes and their priests. They suffer because of uh, their leader's unfaithfulness. What they need is somebody who will be a prophet and a faithful priest and a faithful king to sit on the throne of David and to intercede for them before the throne of God. Okay? Does, this make, does all this make sense? The point being... Um, that when, when we see in Song of Songs this language of exclusive love, right? It is never like, I'm going to be your boyfriend and we'll just go hang out, you know, at the coffee shop, just the two of us, okay? It's, it's never like, I, I'm always sort of wary of this really um, high school kind of romanticism where, look, he loves me and I love him and this is going to be, it's just going to be the two of us forever, that's not the point, right? That's not the point. Um, in fact, this is one of the ways that marriage carries its weight as an analogy, as the image of God's relationship to his people. Because what does marriage do? It doesn't just remain uh, me and my beloved, you know, just the two of us. It's always procreative. Whether it is through natural children or through the life that it gives to, to the community, okay? Um, in fact... This might be one of the last things here. Hang on. Um, I have a little clip to show you. I know that last time Pastor Nelson showed you um, at least part of this, these Ecce Humanum films, right? And the first one was about marriage. There's a little bit of it. When, I, when I'm doing premarital counseling with um, couples, I, here's one of, the, one of the ways I talk about it with them. I say, look, I don't have to convince you to be married. You've already... You've already decided that. I don't have to convince you that marriage is good. That's why you're here, right? So here's what we need to talk about. What is marriage good for? Okay? What is the meaning of marriage? You have this great natural impulse to be married. You're acting on it. Fantastic. But you might not really know just how big of a deal you're getting into. You might think it's just about me and her. You might think it's just the two of us. Um, and that's, if, if that's the case, then you don't really need me and you don't need the church because you can work that out on your own. But I actually have a vested interest in this, as does the whole church, as does the whole world. We have a vested interest in you understanding what your marriage is about because it's not just about you. It's about us, too. It's about God's uh, his plan for blessing the world. 
Okay, so uh, let me find the right spot, 11.15. And look, I'm going to get the sound to work today. But there's going to be, I'll just give you, there's going to be a low-level hum that you have to ignore, all right? Uh, Because I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, Sorry. Okay, let's try it. Okay, that's all. I love, I love that notion. Um, in the first place, because it, it really transforms, it changes, it gives weight to the way people think about marriage, young couples especially, who, who have all kinds of ideas and they need, um, they need to be taught what marriage is for. Um, it's for. It's your own little project for the good of the world. And it's designed by God. And um, it's not just... It's not just, you know, how this impacts the world right now, but it is a reflection of how God relates to his people, right? Now think then about how that, how that works for Israel relating to God. When they misunderstand their marriage to God and they mess it up, what does that do? It really blows up the whole thing, right? It makes the world, uh, the world suffers on account of that. Um, but now... The climax of the story comes when Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He is the Israelite par excellence, the one who does what his father, uh, his father uh, asks him to do, who fulfills all righteousness, um, and who intercedes for his people, not just uh, with his prayers and not just offering sacrifices that consist of the blood of bulls and rams, but offering his own blood, a sacrifice, right? Um, it's, that is, that is uh, a marriage, a faithfulness to this relationship that we could never accomplish. And just like Moses interceding for the people of Israel convinces God to remain with them, to go with them, Jesus does it eternally for all of us. Now, the last, the last point to then say about that is how we understand ourselves as the church. So, so you know, we still live in this situation... Um, where uh, not all the world uh, follows, right? Not all the world knows that it's been blessed through the nation of Israel in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Um, This is where the church is the new Israel, all right? So just as God uh, chose Israel to be a light to the nations, he has now chosen us, chosen the church to do that, which is important because... Uh, there's really, you know, really common notions in, say, America or in evangelicalism that Christianity is about me and God. It's about just the two of us sitting, you know, having our little romance. That is not what it's all about in the least. In fact, if it's about that, if, if we think that it's about that, then we've stunted it. We've turned it in, we've corrupted it. 
Just as, just as you know, a marriage that says, look, we don't want, we're, this is just about us. We're just, forget about anybody else. This is just about us. Um, stunts, stunts God's promises for that marriage. Um, in the same way, we understand our role in, as the church as being, as being the new Israel. We've been chosen for this. As Peter said this morning in chapel, a royal priesthood um, to proclaim the excellencies of God's grace. Okay? Any questions? I once heard, maybe I've mentioned this to you, once heard, I once heard that you shouldn't ask, are there any questions, but what are your questions? Because you, you must have some. But you can ask them of Pastor Nelson next week. Also. <laughs> yes, Kathy. I, I read an interesting, or part of an interesting essay about the, the meaning of charismatic, uh, that the Greek word is grace. Yes. And that charismatic people... They don't try to be. They just are because they've been graced. Yeah. Yeah. And what was funny is that it said that people that try to be charismatic just come off as preening oafs. And I'm wondering if that's kind of how the church appears to the world because of this. It's just me and Jesus. Yeah. And we're in this romance or romance or whatever you want to call it. Right. And... But if we're, it's a broader thing, then people would see us as we would be charismatic because we're just, we're just walking around kind of clueless because we've been graced. And people would be drawn to that. And instead, we come off like preening ups because we're trying really hard. To... Think, about, think about Mary in, in precisely this way, right? So you see, Mary, you see Mary in this Song of Songs text. The women call me blessed, right? Yeah. Just like all, you know, all, from this day forth, they, they will call you blessed. That's what Elizabeth says to to Mary, um, Mary, like Noah, like Abraham, had nothing to commend her to God. She was chosen. Be, she found favor in God's eyes because God decided to find her favorable. Um, if we understood ourselves that way, just think about how it would change. It would change the way we think about our role in the world, right? Yeah, you're, that's a good. That's a fantastic observation, Carol. Kind of dovetails with the thought I had this week after early Eucharist one. One day, I was I was just enjoying the kids. Yeah. They're, you know, just, they're just being kids, doing what kids do. Being children. And, and whatever. The next thought was, we're children of God. We're not adults of God. <laughs> yeah. Our sons and daughters, we're children of God. There's the freedom. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to uh, invent yourself. Um, in fact, you know, before God finds fa- finds you favorable, um, you got you got nothing going. So, right? There's not not much, not much um, to work with if you're going to try and invent yourself. If you're going to try and be somebody, um, but once you are somebody, once you've been given uh, God's name. The you know the rest is the rest just falls into place. It's all just fun after that, right? Okay, we should go. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Come back next week. Sign up for the women's treat.